You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and on this week's show, we have a pair of guest interviewers talking to two female artists who do very personal autobiographical work in their various projects. Later in the show, writer and critic Columba Quigley will be talking to fine artist Josephine King about her new exhibition of self-portraits which incorporate text and painting at the Riflemaker Gallery in Soho. Before that, cartoonist Richie K. Chandler will be talking to Simone Lear about her new graphic novel, Please God, Find Me a Husband. First of all, here's a word from our sponsors. Resonance FM is London's only non-profit community radio art station who need your donations to help keep the station and podcasts on air. All the programme makers and all the engineers all work for free to bring you shows as diverse as The Bike Show, The Free University of the Airways, Hooting Yard... Resonance FM accepts donations in the form of cheques, credit and debit cards, bank transfers, PayPal and cash. Go to www.resonancefm.com for more details. We also accept hobnobs and teabags. Your donation means our continued existence. Hello, this is Richie K. Chandler recording an interview with Simone Lear for Panel Borders. Simone, we're going to be talking about your new graphic novel, Please God, Find Me a Husband. Would you like to give a little introduction to that? It's quite hard to explain what the book's about because it, it starts off about being a woman. It's about a woman who's looking for a husband. Actually, I'm saying a woman. It's actually about myself. Um, it's an autobiographical graphic novel. So it starts off about that, someone who's ha- kind of angry at God for not providing a husband. And she has a rant at him in public in Leicester Square. Well, not out loud, but internally. And... Um, and then during this kind of conversation with God, although he's not really speaking much, she, she kind of hears his voice uh, through the lyrics of an in excess song. It's very wacky. And, uh, and then through that, she feels uh, inspired to kind of go on this adventure with God. Um, and, and then when that happened, because that actually did happen to me, I kind of had this, this vision, this, uh, in my mind, I imagined the whole of the book in front of my eyes flicking all the pages flicking before my eyes and I thought right I'm going to do this I'm going to write a graphic novel from it so yeah I had a glimpse of the whole book uh, and that's where I that was my starting point I didn't know how to have an adventure with God but it's it's about this relationship between myself and God and I'm trying to depict that it's quite interesting in that way because it deals with two relationships it deals with uh potential relationship of finding a, a new a new partner a new man but also this this spiritual relationship underneath you've got that one which is constant and then one which is missing from your your world at the moment or in the in the time of the book anyway so it's interesting you're saying that the whole book sort of unraveled in in, in your mind um, before you'd written it because I was wondering when you were visiting the nunnery spending time there how much how conscious you were and thinking oh this would be a good bit for the uh, you know for the graphic novel this would be good or I hope something exciting happens here or if you just sort of look back on it and then picture moments well, I mean, I ended up in this nunnery, which I did think when I got there, it's like, how am I going to find a husband in here? But <laughs> when I was thinking this adventure of God, with God, I was inspired to go and spend some time in prayer with some nuns. I was friends with these nuns and these priests. And I suppose I, w- I was there for a couple of weeks and I was hoping that something really exciting would happen. Like my friend, Sister Mary Trinity, she's always having these near-death experiences, telling me about all of her adventure stories and all her time in, in the Philippines where 
she's got so many stories. And when I was there, I was thinking, nothing's happening. Nothing. Come on, something happened. I, I, I don't know what. But but when but what happened was that when I was praying because we'd have an hour of prayer every day. Um, and it was in silence, it was in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, it was in a Catholic church. I was having these very visual prayer experiences, and it was afterwards I thought, well, I can try and put those into the story. So it was just kind of piece by piece, and then I suppose after a while, bits of more stories unraveled in my life, and I ended up going to Australia as well. Mm-hmm. So things happen piece by piece. And the, yeah, I think that was quite interesting myself, not knowing so much about what goes on inside a nunnery. And I think most public sort of depictions of, of Catholic faith and, and particularly nuns are either sort of sound of music, fantastical, fun, jolly, happy singing nuns, or kind of an extreme nightmare, sort of negative aspect of Catholic history and, and what's gone on. So it's quite nice to see a very sort of day-to-day existence that the nuns were going to and sort of, oh, OK, it's not, it's not that dramatic one way or another. It was nice to see and learn about that aspect of things Um, and I think a lot of great stories work in that way where you have a personal story of somebody in this case you as well as letting the reader in on a world that they might not be so familiar with if you have a story based in another country or if in in another time in another culture Persepolis for example is a you know a great graphic novel which has a personal story but you're also learning about the history of Iran and I felt that this was introducing the reader to aspects of things that they weren't familiar with were you conscious of that trying to show her maybe a positive light of, of Catholicism in, in your story? Well, I really wanted to tell the truth of that experience. And I, I suppose I didn't want to sell it or anything like that. I was just trying to show the experiences that I was having. And actually, I don't know, I mean, nothing really dramatic happened in that nunnery at all, in, in that story. I think the everyday things that happen, the nun going to visit the old people in the town and, and help them, singing for them, giving them comfort, and just sitting and meditating, and you sitting with them meditating and your mind wandering off, that, that sort of thing may not seem that dramatic, but it's still interesting for a reader that isn't sort of familiar with that world, I think. I suppose I did want to show what what went on. I wanted to tell the story like that. But also I wanted to show another world as well, which was the world of of the spirituality as well. What happens in prayer life? Because, I mean, I would be fascinated to know what happens when these other people are praying. What kind of things are they seeing? I mean, because I'm a... I think because I'm a comic artist, when I pray, I see things in a very visual way. Sometimes I feel like I'm just watching some kind of film. And the things in the prayer actually surprise me as well. It's like entering into a completely different world. So I thought it would be, I mean, not, not always, not always. And I'm not always saying that that is God directly speaking to me because I think a lot of things happen in my imagination as well. I'm an imaginative person. But I think that God can work through that as well. And even in my prayer in the nunnery, it was going into places that I didn't even really want to go into. It went into my a childhood story, child, something that happened in childhood, and I, I didn't even want to go there, actually. So that, that's what happened in the prayer life, and I, I really try to show that in my best way through, through the image and text. And also, I suppose not always during prayer would it be in a visual way. Sometimes I felt that God was speaking directly into my, my heart, which is called an inner locution. So I wanted to try and show that as well in the comic book. And as a comic artist, it was really an interesting challenge to show how can I, how can you show in a visible way an invisible God, 
right. it was an exciting challenge and and as a, an illustrator as well I've always been interested in showing relationships in my last book Fluffy which was about a relationship between a, a rabbit and, a, and his dad who's a human I was interested in showing how they relate to each other and in a comic you don't question too much that that the oddness of that relationship you just see it as a drawing and you accept that world so I thought well hopefully the audience will be able to take on this other world as well the spiritual world that I'm depicting and I and it was a real challenge to write this because part of me was trying to justify it or explain it and I thought you know what that doesn't work just give the audience the, the, the credit that they can just take this on it doesn't matter if they believe it or not you're showing a world that they can they can accept or, or not accept, but hopefully enjoy it as an entertaining story. Right. Regardless of whether they have their own faith or not, it's it would be false for you to show anything but what you're going through, and whether they believe you're imagining things or whatever, you're you're laying down your cards on the table and expressing exactly what you're going through. I think it's quite a, a brave thing to do, and it's an interesting move after doing Fluffy, where your sort of main character is a, a fictional man and uh, and a rabbit, to then depict your main character as yourself, and not even in a light, trivial way, but you know, exposing very personal things, you know, things which people aren't usually that happy to talk about publicly. But you, you know, you express your faith, and you also express your loneliness and romantic problems, that, you know, which are very difficult. So why would you choose to do that through using yourself as the protagonist when you, it might be a little bit safer to do, I don't know, another a talking sweet corn or something along those lines? Well, I mean, it was a very scary thing to do and I felt so vulnerable doing it and I did keep stopping the work as well. It's like, I don't want to do this. This is just putting me in a really vulnerable position. I feel like I'm bearing my soul here. I am bearing my soul in a way, not all of it, but a glimpse of it. But... I also, and some of my friends are saying, well, you know, you don't have to draw you. You can draw someone else or change the name. But then I thought it loses all of the weight if, if you say that it's someone else or that it's, it's made up because none of it was made up. I mean, you don't have to believe that what's, what happens, but I just wanted to communicate what goes on in, that, in this, this world of my prayer or my imagination. And I just wanted to tell the truth as well of, of that. And, and also, it was also embarrassing for me because... I found out that by showing that relationship with God, I don't feel like I come across very well at all. It's just like I'm, I'm the angry person. It shows my selfishness, just being self-absorbed. And it was, you know, it was a bit of an eye-opener when I was doing it. It was like, ooh, you know. I mean, if you're going to do something like this, it would be really great if you'd come across as being this really good person who's a bit more perfect than that. But actually, I thought, gosh, I'm quite selfish, actually, and, and miserable in a way. But then there's a lot of comedy. There's comedy in that as well. So, I mean, once I got going, I thought, God, there's, there's a lot of jokes to be had here, and they're they're not made up jokes. These are things that happen. I just find real life incredibly funny. And then I was thinking, is this whole thing really blasphemous as well? Are you allowed to do a story that's you know showing the Catholic faith, but it's just ridiculously funny as well kind of well I'm not saying my book's ridiculously funny but there's a lot of humor in it in so absolutely yeah. yeah I mean it's it is it's a very funny charming book and I think though by showing your sort of maybe your selfishness or your flaws is you know that does endear the reader to yourself as a character in the book and I think if you were to depict yourself as a ideal Simon you know then people would start to distance themselves from the character so I think showing your fragility or the human experiences can work in your favor 
Speaking of fluffy, it's been a long time. The first issue was in 2003, so it's been nearly a decade since you published the start of your first graphic novel. I was just so stuck after fluffy. I just, I don't know what happened. I had massive writer's block. It was horrible. And I did start projects, and I, I really wanted to write another book, but nothing came to me. And I, I tried sitting at my desk and doing research and thinking of things. And then it really was that moment in Leicester Square when I, I, I felt really inspired and, I, and then just kind of had a vision to work towards. And then I just thought, right, I'm going to work with this. But I just went through a really dry patch. And, and again, even when I finished this book, I felt really, I felt quite empty after doing that, actually. It's like, I don't ever want to do any more art ever again. I want to work in Sainsbury's. I don't care anything. <laughs> I, yeah, it's kind of quite draining when you're pouring yourself out into doing a big book. Um, so I don't know hopefully I'll get some ideas for another book at some point I don't, I don't know I mean I was speaking to Tom Gould about that and he he said that he's going to start writing a new book but he just sits down it's like right I'm going to write a book I'm going to do research and I love that and, but I don't know if my brain works in that same way I suppose we're all different creativity works differently with all of us so right yeah Obviously, when you first started doing Fluffy, you didn't even have a, a publisher. You were publishing it through Cabin and Press, which just mentioned Tom Gold was the small press company that you worked with Tom on. So was that obviously came to you quite naturally. There was no one putting pressure on you to write Fluffy. And then again, quite naturally, something came to you and you, you worked on this new graphic novel, Please Go Find Me a Husband. Was there pressure on you from a publisher to come up with a follow-up to Fluffy? they didn't put any pressure on me at all and and I did show him the book whilst I was doing it after I've been to the nunnery I told him about it but it's in the book and he just wasn't sure about it at all um uh and then I just thought oh, well I'm just going to finish it anyway and if they don't like it I'll I'll try and find another way to publish it I just thought I had it in my heart to do it and I thought I'll just give it a go take a risk drive off a cliff that's what you kind of do when you do artwork sometimes but then he he was he was fantastic he said oh I love it and yeah and in fact he didn't even want to edit it or anything it's like you've no you've got to edit it you've got to at least look at the spelling mistakes <laughs> so they were very supportive in that way and gave, gave me loads and loads of free reign which is a good thing but also very scary as well Okay, so you you could basically sit down and had all that freedom to write one graphic novel from start to finish, which would have, I'd assume, give you a lot of opportunity to change things around and tweak things as you went along. Whereas with Fluffy, as it was initially published in four parts, you were sort of more regimented in that you had to do four chapters of equal length. So was that a, a freeing experience in itself? Yeah, it was freeing. But like I said before, it was quite scary as well. Sometimes you can be given too much freedom, too many choices. And even with the front cover, they said, oh, you can just do what you like. It's like, no, I want someone else to help me, someone else to make decisions. I don't know. It can be quite overwhelming making decisions about things, even like what colour to paint your living room. It's just too much choice, you know. So would that be why you've done maybe less small press work? Since Fluffy, you haven't released anything through Cabin and Press. So basically the work you've been doing has been for other other organisations. You've obviously been working with newspapers, you've done your children's books, and you've done work for the DFC and the Phoenix children's comics. Do you find that sort of situation easier then, where you've got these little, you're forced into the situation, you've got to get something done for, per weekly issue, and that sort of forces you to get that work done? Yeah, no, it is good to do something on a weekly basis because I suppose, yeah, if you've got this big open project which doesn't have an end point, you can just 
find that you're procrastinating or or something like that. So yeah, it is good to have a, a weekly thing. It's definitely helpful to have that. You've got to have it in. And I do another uh, image as well for building magazine, an illustration. Yeah, I like that a weekly on a weekly basis and. Yeah, I find it a challenge to illustrate those articles as well. It's quite fun. Yeah. That's interesting. Cool. You were saying that if the publisher wasn't going to be interested in Please God Find Me a Husband, you might have to find some other means of getting it out there. It works so well as a physical object, this book, with beautiful end papers, a lovely feel to it. You spent loads of effort putting a graphical touch to the credits and every page as you've taken advantage of. But if that wasn't an option, if nobody was interested in publishing this, where would you go to? Would you, would you put it out as a small press book? Would you put it online? Or what, what would you have done? I think I probably would have tried to self-publish it. I'm not sure, because I didn't have to go too far down that avenue of thought. I, d- I haven't really looked into the online web publishing before. But like you say, it's quite nice to have that physical object, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a different experience when you see everything on the screen. I, lo- I like that having to turn the page of a book. So, so I don't know about that. Yeah. I saw a re- review of this graphic novel which mentioned you were a kind of Christian Bridget Jones. How would you take that? Well, I, don't, I don't mind that. What else did it say in that, in that <laughs> review? <laughs> <laughs> That's the bit which stood out to me. Well, I don't mind that. I mean, Bridget Jones. Do you know what? I haven't even seen the film or read the books, but it's you know, a single single woman. Effectively, yeah, a single woman <laughs> wanting a man. It's kind of there. Just, well, it's true. Yeah. It's true. I'm a single woman, you know, a Christian, single woman. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind that pigeonhole thing. I don't mind at all. <laughs> Thanks very much, Simon. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you. And you. Thank you. Simon Lear's new graphic novel, Please God, Find Me a Husband, is available now from Jonathan Cape, and you can find out more about her work at www.simonlear.com. To find out more about Richie K. Chandler's work, please go to www.tempolush.com. Next, writer and critic Columba Quigley is talking to fine artist Josephine King about her work. Josephine makes ink paintings on paper with a framing text that surrounds the portrait and documents the artist's often traumatic experience of living with bipolar disorder. I suppose the central theme here is about relationships. And I think people say it's about the 21st century female artist. And looking at the posters, I suppose my first question is Selfish Bitch is at the top of a few of them, Mm -hmm. and then followed by Female Artist. And really, to what extent are they completely interrelated in that it is you, Josephine King, the artist, or can they be separated, um, Josephine King, from the artist? I think the the pictures happened all naturally. I never thought about them in advance. It was a, a development after the Life So Far pictures, which were completely based on my experience as a bipolar sufferer. And then after that show, I just kept on painting. I was still interested in the self-portrait, but this time I wanted to look more on the outside of things rather than on on my inside. On, on my, I concentrated more on the outside aspect. And the selfish bitch thing just came about, and 
basically I wanted to portray in life-size portraits downstairs in the gallery, life-size portraits, but obviously with, still with text around the edge, expressing how it feels to be a female artist for me, I guess in the 21st century, but also it spilled out in my feelings about how women are seen still now in the 21st century. And it, it just all spilled out. And I use text because I love to write as well as paint. And I love to, I want to express something, but not in necessarily a direct, such a direct way, but in a, also in a quite a poetic way and show how I see women First, it started out with the selfish bitch. You're seen as a selfish bitch if you do something you like and want to do as a female. And as a female artist, you're seen often, in, not even with that people say that to you, but in their eyes or the way the conversation is going. And you're very isolated always in such a profession. And I'm, I'm sure it, it, it is in other professions as well. But like I said, I also looked around me and saw that a lot of women are still in the same position as, say, my mother, my grandmother or my great-grandmother were in as women, being, as I call it, tricked and trapped in the same things. I just like to uh, express everything at the same time when I'm working. I'm just painting like a roller coaster, so it just all comes out. I think in one of the paintings you say, The Price I Pay... And I think as Mulrose said, that um, art is a revolt against fate. Do you think the price has been too high? Well, too high, no, because I have to paint. So painting is, it is my life, really, and I wouldn't want to miss it. And, yeah, there have been a lot of sacrifices, but also I'm bipolar and this has brought a lot of suffering and difficulty in my life. So the, the light is shining on both sides. You know, I mean, I can say as a woman artist it's difficult, but as a bipolar sufferer it's also very difficult. So, you know, you make mistakes as a bipolar by saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, constantly putting your foot in it. But as a, f a woman artist you can be very despised because... People just around you, men and also women, can really not like you very much because you're doing what you want to do. And I think that as soon as women do what they want to do in life, they're seen as being selfish. But on the other hand, a lot of the women who reach the top or do reach the top of their careers or something, they're usually women you wouldn't want to know either because they've just become so violently horrible and hard. So it's, it's a catch-22, you know. There has been a big price to pay, yes. But at the end of the day, when I look at my pictures, I think, yeah, it was worth it. It was just worth it, because I'm doing what makes me happy. I remember reading, I think around the time of your previous exhibition, about the impact of your grandmother. You mentioned her a moment ago. And I was just wondering to what extent she influenced when she used to read um, stories to you. I think you said at one point she had a hatred of women and intimacy and to what yeah. extent that impacted on your sort of relationships or view well, of... I can't think directly what it, the impact was. She was an incredibly aggressive woman and um, she... Very, very, very aggressive, quite frightening. 
And uh, obviously a woman who was trapped and stuck in a, in a kind of... She was very, very clever, but was never able to express that in her generation and lifetime. She just had to work as a secretary for Kodak, and she was very, very intelligent and clever. But obviously a woman who was you know, stuck to the kitchen sink. And then as a grandmother, first she treated my mother very aggressively and, and dominatingly, and then, and then her grandchild. So I, I just see this as, I don't blame her, I just see her as a woman who was trapped. She, should, she could have done so much, yet she had four children and couldn't, you know. And I see women these days, friends, who are stuck behind the pram, stuck behind the kitchen sink, trying to scrape a living and paying the mortgage, you know, I just see that it still exists and that there isn't enough support amongst women to think in a broader way. In a, in a, we should support each other more and come up more and there should be better equality. I mean, I'm not some um, raving feminist either. I hardly ever think about it because I'm always painting. But I like to express these things as well. But that's not just what the painting's about. The painting goes on and on and on and develops um, into different subjects. And one of them is that painting above the um, fireplace there, which is a painting I'm really, really happy with because it's my new departure. And it's basically a homage uh, to um, Antonello de Messina from the National Gallery, St. Jerome in his study. And... I've combined uh, taking some of the things out of his painting and some of the composition, but then I've put myself there painting, whereas he's sitting in his study reading books and I'm painting. And I've taken bits out of it, and I, I just love this new departure as well. My work isn't just a feminist statement or a bipolar statement. No, it just goes on and on and on. Yes, because going back to what started, I suppose, in a sense, in your previous exhibition was relationships, and now it's evolved into or developed into what we see now. But your relationships with men weren't bad, or, for example, your relationship with your brother is extremely close. But in one of them, you say, the men I've known, one beat me, one unfaithful, one alcoholic and heroin addict, one schizophrenic. And I was just wondering to what extent that was just tied up with bipolar disease rather than tied up with Justin King, the artist. As a bipolar, it's very difficult in relationships because as soon as somebody gets very close, it's like a, you're, when you're bipolar, it's like walking around with a terrible wound and then that just wound just gets ripped open every time somebody becomes emotionally close. It's another uh, way of expressing just the suffering, really. And I have made a whole series of painting, which I call the violent paintings, which are scenes of all the violent situations I've been in with men, in a, almost in a comic strip way. But they haven't showed them at this show as yet. I think they're intending to show them in two months' time, upstairs because it's a whole another series there are 10 paintings of basically depicting scenes of men beating me in different or or in a threatening way in different uh, moments of my life which I've experienced it's it's sort of funny as well it's not just the way I paint is very colorful very playful very 
you know, sometimes quite childlike, the way they're depicted. So they're not, they're not threatening paintings. They're very beautiful paintings with gold and pink and greens and purples. You know, they're really beautiful paintings. And they have the text around the edge saying the most devastating things, like he threatened to kill me in the American Hotel in Amsterdam, and it shows me under a bed, and this man just tr about to, you know, strangle me or something. So th there's a paradox between the painting and the message. The message is horribly violent, and I don't know if anyone would really want that on their wall, but on the other hand, the picture, the painting, is very beautiful, very colourful, very inspired, again, probably by all these old um, paintings from the 15th century in the National Gallery with all the pinks and the golds and the turquoise. So I'm, I'm showing these things, and it's like this in these paintings here. When you first see them, I think this is what is the surprising thing. They're very colourful, and the harlequin nudes, you know, it's very beautiful, but then when you read the message, it's, oh, I have to look again, you know, look again. And I have written out the text of a lot of your paintings, and they're very poetic in their own right. Which came first, the text or the image? You know, when I started them, that was six years ago, with the bipolar series, and that wasn't even in my head to make a series or anything. I was working completely alone. I was completely ill um, with uh, psychosis and bipolar. I was in a very dark and bad space. But I started, and I just remember painting the first portrait, and it was on the floor of my flat where I was completely alone in Amsterdam. And then I suddenly realised that I needed something extra to say how I felt. But remember, I was really ill. I wasn't working for an exhibition. I wasn't working to think, oh, this is going to be an exhibition. It didn't go like that. And so I wrote the text around the edge of what was the first painting about the uh, pills I was taking and then... The, the picture very soon came about the uh, suicide with the knife. It was just in order to say extra how I felt. Do you know, mm. I just, the image on its own, no, there had to be the text. And then I just carried on writing from there on and uh, painting. And years and years later, they came to the attention of this London, great London gallery. Do you think the text will stay in your work? Do you see it as something that will persist? Well, the text is certainly something I'm not going to stop doing. At least I d it won't necessarily be there always in my painting. I'm still, you know, I, I feel myself as a young artist, really, you know, although I've been painting for 25 years. And the text has been very good in the fact that I can express myself with words as well as, as with paint. And I want to carry on with that. And I don't know which form that will happen. You know, uh, it could happen in more serious writing because now I only use the text for my paintings. I mean, I'm writing all the time. Every day I write things down. But my feelings, you know, the things that come in my head. But I don't know what form that will go into. I can't tell you that because... I can only develop in my studio and can continue with the work in my studio and, and, and hopefully you'll be able to see that development.
Comics are sort of about reticence in a sense and about gaps and often there are holes in the meanings that the reader has to fill in or the viewer. And this reminds me very much of that because although the text does tell a certain, to a certain extent, I think I feel as a viewer that I'm required or needed, I have a role in completing the context or the meaning or my own meaning perhaps. When you're painting, do you think of a viewer? Do you think of the person who's going to look at the final product? You know, when you're writing something that you're trying to, that you feel or have felt or are trying to say something, there isn't much space to do it in. There isn't much, so you. So I've worked in direct, very direct texts. Sometimes very, just a few words, but 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 very um, direct, and like the one there, violated, his smile had bad intentions, I fell in his trap. Obviously, I'm giving you a lot of information in a few words, but there's also a lot missing because you don't know what happened. It's missing. It's like you say in the comic strip, they can only fit in so many words. And, and, and so the child or the adult who reads the comic strip has a huge imagination going on about what is happening in their own way, in their own world, with the comic strip. And I think that's what happens here. If a woman who has been violated in any way reads that text, she might reflect back on what happened to her, or you might remember something that happened to you in that time by reading that. You might remember something. It might hit you in that way or something. You know, I wrote Modern Woman There, for instance, Caught in the Spider's Web, Screaming in Darkness. You know, for instance, a friend of mine, she's just been betrayed by her husband. Maybe if she reads that, she'll feel what I'm saying. So a lot of to do with what I write, it, it works two ways. It's the viewer, it's the artist and it's the viewer. And you can go along with your own imagination, your own... It doesn't really matter what happened to me exactly. It's just triggering maybe some feeling. I think a lot of people suffer terribly and not a lot of people are talking about their suffering at all. And I've chosen to talk about the suffering I've had because I've got nothing to lose from it. I've just got nothing to lose. I don't care. I just don't care. Some people have said after the bipolar show, how could you say those things about what happened to you or what you've been through? You know, how could you admit that or say it? How could you? And I'm saying, well, I, I can, I can, and I want to because I think people shouldn't sit alone with their suffering. And I'm very close, very sensitive in a way to, to people's suffering, particularly that of animals and women. I mean, I just am. I, I just think we're the invisible underdogs, basically, still. In, um, other women won't agree with me on that. And do you think, you know, the, the visibilisation, if, if I call it that, of suffering, do you think it's possible, do you think it's possible to communicate what it's like to suffer, to share that story? I think it is from... A painter's point of view, I think if you're a good painter, if you are good and, and can be honest and show, I think you can bring it across. I think you really can. And, you know, I can use all the colours in the world I want. 
and I could still show the suffering or something. For instance, that painting above the fireplace, yeah. which is the homage to Antonello de Messina, I think it's successful, that painting, because it shows enormous sadness and isolation, really. And, you know, whichever way you look at it, it shows something very sad and isolating. Yeah, I, I, I think I've succeeded there. Harvey Picard, who wrote American Splendour, he said that putting your yourself on the page was about truth, not flattery. But on the other hand, people say those that can represent themselves, can do self-portraits, have complete access to their own inner selves. Do you, do you think that? Do you think you have complete access to yourself? I would say so, because I spend... As a, as a painter, I spend a lot of time on my own. Yeah. And... Seriously, really on my own. I live in the countryside, which is a very quiet place. I'm surrounded by animals. I have a donkey. I have a dog. Uh, there's a horse, um, which belongs to my mother. I'm, I'm, I'm in a world in my studio which j- just is magic, just takes me away into my work. I think I'm very in touch with my inner feelings, and I think it's this... I wouldn't call it isolation, but I know a lot of people wouldn't do it because they just wouldn't be able to stand it. But I think that's the only way you can stay in touch with your own emotions and your own inner self. When I paint, I go into another world. I go absolutely into another another world, and, and hours and hours and hours later, I wake up from this world in order to walk my dog or feed the donkey. And I wake up and I see the picture and I know that I've been honest and I know I don't even question it. But it's because I have a situation where I've found myself in where I can be completely honest with myself because there's just nothing else there, you know. There's just nothing else there. Yes, and... A lot of people wouldn't have the courage to stay in that place, to stay in a place where to be in touch with one's inner feelings is painful, I imagine. It can be painful, um, but it's also, I imagine it's a, a, a bit like being a Buddhist monk or something. You know, you can go in, you can reach your subconscious. And I think that's necessary for painting. I don't think I could do this kind of work if I was painting in the busy city all the time. I mean, I obviously come to London and especially to get inspiration from certain museums. I'm always drawing in the National Gallery or the British Museum. But, you know, I need the inspiration from the world of art, which is fantastically found in London. I mean, we have all the art here from all around the world, and and I can see more Greek sculpture and more things in London than in Greece, you know. So, uh, for instance, that is very important, but the actual painting, you must find a kind of a... It's like going into some kind of meditation. You need peace, and I'm also there because of my bipolar situation because it's a very ruthless disease and I can go into psychosis I mean twice a year about and uh, have see hallucinations and things disturbing to me but in the quiet country place at least it's absorbed in a positive way rather than if I was in a city and I might find myself in the street in the middle of the night, you know, doing I don't know what, screaming, you know. So 
so for a bipolar person and for a painter, the living in the countryside works, but mainly to call up the subconscious and the inner being. I've depicted myself again and again and again, and I'm not afraid to do so, because I'm trying to show you something again and again and again. On this one here, you say, I am bleeding. And there is a sense in some of your paintings, particularly in the one in the corner, that you are bleeding onto the page, literally or metaphorically, I should say. To what extent is that a liberation? To what extent is it cathartic? How do you feel after that image has been painted? It's quite shocking, really. I mean, in a way, there's something about being a woman and and just, I don't know, the whole thing that we're bleeding. But then... I am bleeding inside my body. In my mind, I am screaming for death. That would be more to do with using the blood as pain, and the blood there is my unused womb. I don't know how to express it in words, really, what I mean by that, but I just want to say that my blood then was used for other things. Yes. And I think it's interesting to mention the word shocking because um, particularly... Two years ago, I was struck by, maybe think of Frida Kahlo, I think, mm-hmm. um, because in a similar way, Frida Kahlo challenged us to look at her pain. I, th- I feel a similar challenge, I think, to stay with the suffering on the page in your paintings. Has Frida Kahlo been a, somebody that you has inspired you or affected you? Absolutely. She's absolutely fantastic, I think. And, uh, you know, I have tons of postcards of her pinned in my studio um, but as the same with I mean so many artists um, Alice Neal, Matisse, Philip Guston, um, so many artists who, who inspire me all the time. I have my art books in the studio, I'm constantly referring to them but I feel with the Frida Kahlo it's true lots of people do bring that one up but yeah. the thing about it is I think I've been through so much suffering with my illness and and because I'm a painter so that's how I express it that it it came from me anyway I think if she hadn't existed I still would have done this work but you know I can say to you yeah of course I look at all these artists all the time especially female artists affect me because I'm a female artist and um Paula Rigo, yeah, I mean, Paula Rigo is an enormous... Um, I was a model for her it was so many years ago now, 15 years ago or something, and I, and I knew her very well. I mean, I don't see her now, but what I learnt from her when I was modelling for her is her determination to work so hard, so incredibly hard. I was so impressed, and this was 15 years ago when I was painting but not... To, to the extent I do now. I think I learnt something from that. She opened my eyes to how hard a, a person can work. And, you know, that inspired me. And, of course, I know her work very well. So, from this, the homage, what is next? What? I'm going on in the direction of the homages now, paintings that uh, inspire me from the National Gallery. But... Again, with something to do with my own life in that, you know. The next one is the Pisanello with the vision of uh, Santos Stas. 
the animal picture in the National Gallery when um, he, he's on a horse and he sees the cross, the crucifixion, up here on a deer's antler, on a, on, in between a deer's antler. It's a religious picture, but actually um, my life is very much about animals as well, and there's going to be a picture around my life to do with the, the animals as well. But there are also the very big paintings that exist which haven't been shown yet, which are shown on the um, inside flap of the book. The huge pictures I've done, ones with me on a horse in India with all the animals depicted, and I'm going on in that way. Is that from the Life So Far book? Yes. Yes. The, the, inside, the inside folder, yep. um, there are two big long pictures Anyway, there are, there's a whole series of those. I plan to continue on that kind of subject of sh showing scenes of my own life in a, in a context with text because yeah. that's how I like to... I, li I love the poetic texts. I love to work those out in my head like puzzles. I don't want to be so direct. I just want to write, use words as I use colour in the same way. Yeah. I remember you said before that you're not a bipolar artist but you're bipolar personified I think mm -hmm. and there's always this debate because people want to have the answer about creativity and mental illness yeah. and what the association is I don't think anybody knows but to what extent is it vital to your inspiration or to your creativity to your artistic impulse I guess well, it's, it's very difficult to talk about this I mean, because I am bipolar and I suffer from this on, on a daily basis. It's mood swings up and down. But the thing is, I do believe strongly that the bipolar has made me into an artist, a real artist, that I never gave up my painting, no matter how bad my situation got, and if uh, no success, and people have saying to me, well, why don't you give up or something? Because as soon as I was in a mania, I had to paint. I had to paint. Or if I was in a depression, the painting brought me out of the depression. You know, it was the only thing that could get me through the day. So I think... Ironically, the illness has helped my will to paint and kept me going. You know, it's difficult. It's difficult to keep going as an artist. It's okay to be an art student and think you're at the top of the world, but the truth comes after, you know, and, and, and the years and years after. And if nobody is looking at you and asking you to get out of bed in the morning to do it, you have to be the one and... I can tell you that is one of the most difficult things. It's really difficult. It, you can be so alone with it. And, <laughs> but if you have something in you which so keeps you going, and in my case, yes, my bipolar mood swings, it, because bipolar also keeps you very much in your own head, so you don't really listen to what all the negativity or the people say around you. Oh, well, you must get a normal job or give up or, you know, you must do this or that and the other. No, I just did exactly. I followed my path. And I suppose one last thing I could ask, if I might. In comic books, in graphic art, each image belongs next to the other. And whether you see this collection, for example, 
as in the previous one and the next one, as they're all part of a narrative, that they exist alongside each other, or whether they have a life of their own, each painting individually? Well, you know, they are nice in groups. They are nice in groups. To see them as groups, like the group downstairs, the tall women, the, the, the tall self-portraits, I think they look fantastic together. In a way, one person should have the whole lot and then show it in one long hallway together or something so you can go through this story and pick up bits as you go along and then see the whole story together. But even so, if somebody just buys the one or somebody just has the one on their wall... I think it it holds on its own as well. I mean, I really do. I think each picture has been done with utmost care and, and love, mm. and they can stand on their own. But, yeah, it is nice to have them in, hanging together in an exhibition so that you can sort of get a whole feeling of the whole story. It's nice. It's mm. good. They are made in groups as well. I, make, um, I work on about three or four at the same time because of the colours have to dry and certain things have to... If I paint a background, then that has to dry before I can paint the foreground, so I'm also painting another one at the same time. So, you know, they are made in the studio, like, almost as groups anyway. And when you look back at, say, your exhibition, Life So Far... Do you see it differently now? Do you see the, or do you look back? Do you look at the images or the, the paintings from then, and do you see the story differently now than you did then? I don't see it differently. I look at the pictures sometimes. I look at the book, and the pictures seem they get better and better as I look at them. That's because I made them, so it's very difficult when you have to take a step back when they're gone into an exhibition or something or a book but when I look at the book I think my god how did I do that how did I do that I don't even remember doing it but for this exhibition again I've I've carried on and when I see it now in the exhibition I think how did I do that I've been I'm almost outside of myself Look, I'm like a viewer. I'm like a viewer. I'm like you. I'm just looking at them again and reading them and I think my god Josephine, you've, you know, that's strong. And I just feel I've got so much more in me, so much more, that it's almost just the tip of the iceberg. Well, we look forward to it very much. Thank you, Josephine. Oh, thank you very much. Josephine King's exhibition, I Told Him I Was an Artist, He Said, Can You Cook, is on now at Rifle Maker Gallery in Soho. The gallery can be found at 79 Beak Street, off Regent Street, London, W1F9SU, and their website is www.riflemaker.org. Josephine's exhibition closes on April the 21st. To read recent articles and reviews by Columba Quigley, please go to www.thenewwolf.co.uk stroke author stroke Columba dash Quigley. A month into spring, there are several exhibitions and talks, signings and festivals going on in London. Simon Lear, along with occasional collaborator Tom Gould, will be talking at this month's meeting of Ladies Do Comics at the Rag Factory on Henyard Street off Brick Lane in London on Monday the 23rd of April from 6.30pm. 
Joining Tom and Simone are comic book artists Rachel Ball and Ian Williams. And you can find more information at www.ladiesdocomics.com. That's L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z-Docomics.com. Tom and Simone will also be appearing a couple of days earlier at the Spring Comica Comiquette, an independent comics fair taking place on Saturday, April the 21st from 11am to 6pm at the Bishopsgate Institute near Liverpool Street Station. Other guests include John Allison, creator of Scary Go Round and Bad Machinery, and Andy Watson, who'll be launching his new Walker Books all-ages graphic novel, Gum Girl. Also at the Comiquette will be dozens of stalls by independent comic creators selling their wares. More info at comicafestival.com. At Orbital Comics near Leicester Square Tube in central London, all this month they're running an exhibition celebrating the re-release of the anthology It's Dark in London. And on display is art by Steve Bell, Jonathan Edwards, Melinda Gebby, Dave McKean, Woodrow Phoenix and many more. Following the It's Dark in London exhibition, the next display at Orbital will be a collection of work by Roger Langridge. And that opens on the 28th of April, and Roger himself will be in the store from 4pm on that day, signing his work. And that's all taking place at Orbital Comics, 8 Great Newport Street, London, WC2H, 7JA. Meanwhile, at Gosh Comics, at 1 Berwick Street, London, on the 24th of April, Daryl Cunningham will be signing copies of his new book, Science Tales, and also be in conversation with comedian Robin Ince, and that's from 7pm on the 24th. And Gosh Comics can be found at 1 Berwick Street, London, W1F0DR, with more info at www.goshlondon.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, with interviews conducted by Richie K. Chandler and Columba Quigley. For more information about forthcoming shows, please go to www.panelborders.wordpress.com or my Twitter feed, at Panel Borders. You can also find more info about Panel Borders by joining our Facebook group, and please do take the time to leave comments and ask questions in any of these locations. And we'll be back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.